those that were a part of leading us to worship this morning, and especially for Joel standing in the gap last week while I was home sick. Um, appreciated the fact that uh, there's a shared leadership here at South Canyon, and we have brothers who can stand up and speak and proclaim God's word to us when, uh, when we're in situations like that. Do you know what hyperbole is? It's an exaggerated statement or claim not meant to be taken literally. So, last week, having the flu, I felt like a... I felt like one of those buffaloes on the Serengeti with a pride of lions hanging off me, eating me while I was alive, and you had nothing to do but stand there. You've seen those shows. It's an exaggeration, yes, but for those of us that have been sick, uh, we can identify with that statement, right? Like you are just so ready for it to be done with that you just are willing to give up if that's God's going to call you home through a fever. Uh, Amen. Make it quick. In our passage today, we find two statements that we might be tempted to view as hyperbole, but they aren't. The first statement is a man who says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. The other statement is in verse 24, and it says, a man says this, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. One statement evidences a bold confidence in God. The other is a threat motivated by a selfish desire for revenge. And so in today's passage in 1 Samuel chapter 14, you'll see it there if you need a a Bible. uh, It's in the chair in front of you, and you're welcome to take those home. On page 235 is where we're going to be this morning as we look at this 14th chapter of the book of Samuel. Our tendency here at South Canyon is to open God's Word, to read it, to take time to explain it, both what it meant and what it's saying, and then to make application to us today. We live in a different day than the scriptures were written in, but we have the same basic spiritual need as those people did back in that day. And so this morning, as we look at these two statements, they're going to kind of act as um, acts, as it were, in a, in, a, in, a, in a drama that's unfolding. So in Act 1, we find a pronouncement of faith in verses 1 through 23. And then in Act 2, we see something quite contrary to that. A pronouncement of revenge. In 1, we see, Act 1, we see a faithful prince who acted like a king. He was under the anointing of God. He did what God's king was supposed to do. But in Act 2, we see the anointed king, the actual king, who acts like an unbeliever, motivated by his greed, his anger, his vengeful spirit. And as we look at these two men and how they responded to their circumstances differently, I hope that what you will see and hear, the argument that I'm going to make today, is that we need to embrace the grace that leads to life. This is the argument, as I understand it, of the passage. Now, it's really difficult, I'll be honest with you, even with two weeks to study this passage. Uh, it's, it's really tough when you get into these Old Testament narratives, and it's a story, and chapter 13 all the way through chapter 15 is one big unit, and we're kind of breaking it up into three chunks. It's hard to know really what the point is, but what we see happening throughout this passage is that God's grace pours out on His people, and some of them embrace it, and others do not. 
And so I want to argue this morning that we ought to embrace the grace that leads to life. Let's look at what we find here in Act 1 of the drama. A pronouncement of faith as we see a faithful prince who acted like a king. The passage opens that one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And as soon as the narrator tells us that, notice he interrupts that with what follows in verses 2 through 5. He gives us Saul's location. He was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Hittib, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. <clears throat> now these are rooted details, rooted in the text, rooted in the geography of the land. If you look at the end of chapter 15, we see that the Philistine garrison went out to the pass at Michmash. So they're on what would be the north side of this gorge, this ravine, this rocky crag that you can't cross. Why are these details important? Well, first, we notice that the king is well behind the battle lines in verse 2. And then we're given all this detail about a guy named Abijah. He's Ichabod's nephew, the great-grandson of Eli. He is the high priest, and he is with Saul. Now, if you remember this family of Eli, because of his sins and his son's sins, they brought God's curse upon their family. God said that he would take away the high priestly office and he would give it to a faithful priest who would obey God in 1 Samuel 2. And it's ironic that the narrator pairs these two men together, not just because they were there, but he didn't have to say these things. He's bringing our attention to the fact that we have a rejected priest alongside a rejected king. Wow. Now that's something, isn't it? Chapter 13, because of Saul's sin, his family forfeited. He forfeited the dynasty, a monarchy. His sons would not rule after him. It would be given over to a man who was better than him, a man whose heart was after God's heart. And so by putting these two men and these two families together, the the narrator is doing more than just reminding his readers of their failures. It's also heightening the desperate situation Israel is in. Her army is vastly outnumbered, and her spiritual and political leaders have no future. Which means, apart from God's grace... Israel's future is tenuous. Again, remember, what's the point I'm trying to argue? Embrace the grace that leads to life. You are in a situation right now, perhaps, where you feel between a rock and a hard place. You feel like your future is bleak. You feel as though the circumstances in which you are living are beyond your control and and you're terrified by them. And I want to urge you to see and hear in this story that there is a grace that leads to life and that you can cling wholly to that. Let's continue as we pick up. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to his young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving 
by many or by few. You see this statement he gives. A statement that evidences absolute trust in God. And notice what his armor bearer says to him in verse 7. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. This guy says, my heart beats with yours, Jonathan. Where you go, I go. Kind of echoes of of Ruth speaking to Naomi. It reminds us of what Gideon had with his helper, his servant, who went down with him to the edge of the Midianite camp and said, I will go with you. It's wonderful to have friends like that, isn't it? I pray that that you will find a friend like that here at South Canyon, that you will be known and that you will be able to support one another in times of need. Life groups are a wonderful vehicle to accomplish that, where you can spend time with people and do life together and see how you can encourage and strengthen one another in times of need. So he says, I'm with you. Verse 8, then Jonathan said, behold... We will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. What's interesting about all this is exactly Jonathan's pathway is, hey, we can't disguise ourselves in this. We're going to make ourselves known to the enemy. And look what he says. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. At that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length, in an acre of land, and there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now we look at these verses and we see that Jonathan believed God could save by many or by few. And as we look at him and we see how he's, he not only believed these things about God, but he also submitted his plans to God. This is the sign that we will use. And if God is with us, then this is what will happen. And if he's not, then we will stay out of the way. And we look at verses 11 and 16, and we see that God answered. And these Philistines, in their proud boasting, they're standing on top of the edge of the cliff, and they say, yeah, come up to us, you guys. We've got nothing to fear from you two men. And this is all the answer Jonathan was looking for. He was convinced that God had given them into his hand. And so they climb the walls of the canyon. And in spite of the fact that they are outnumbered greatly and the fact that they are such close quarters, these two men in just a short period of time killed 20 men in hand-to-hand combat. Being tired. I don't know if you've done much climbing, rock climbing, but I can't imagine scaling a wall that could be hundreds of feet high, and then, okay, wait a second, guys, give me, give me five, and we'll, we'll pick up here. And he just immediately has to engage them in warfare. But notice, God threw the Philistines in a panic. If you look at verse 15, God not only scared those that were in that garrison, but even those that were in the fields of Michmash. You know, as chapter 13 says, they greatly outnumbered them. 30,000 of these, 20,000 of these, 10,000 of these, and beyond number of those. 
Even those three raiding parties that we see in chapter 13, they are trembling. And why is that? Because verse 15 also puts in this little added note that God made the earthquake. What was happening on the top of that little cliff was an earthquake accompanied by an unexpected disaster from the Philistine point of view where two men, even though fatigued from scaling that wall, are able to defeat 20 men. Leviticus 26 says, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Deuteronomy also is a promise of God, from God to Israel. <clears throat> but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. You see, what was taking place here in these verses isn't the result of Jonathan's ambition. It wasn't Jonathan's skill. It was God who put the Philistines in panic. It was God who confused them, just as he had done for Gideon against the Midianites. And when we see Jonathan trusts in God, now look at verses 17 through 20, the beginning part, and you see what happens next. Verse 16, I should say. We need to pick up there. The watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Saul's confused. What's going on? Who's not with us? Count and see who's gone from us. I didn't give any orders. What's taking place here? When they counted, they discovered Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. Let's just pause there for a moment. We see that Saul is missing out. You've got this active young man, and you've got this passive king. Saul is playing catch-up throughout the entire narrative of chapter 14. He doesn't know what's happened. He doesn't know who's missing. And he's even late to get to the battle. He's supposed to be the king who's leading his people. That's what they wanted. And he's well behind the battle lines. He doesn't even know as we get toward the end of the chapter who's at fault, who's done the wrong thing that has caused sin. We're given the picture of a young man here who has absolute confidence in his God and he is ready to act in faith. And not only does he trust God with his life, But as I said a moment ago, he submits his plans to the Lord and waits for the Lord to answer. We've seen Saul's flaws already, chapter 13, and we're going to see more of them here this week and again next week. Let me be clear, if if you find yourself in a place where you've not had the best model as a parent, let me just say, you're not destined to repeat the sins of your father and your mother. Your family tree doesn't dictate your future when God's involved in it. Saul is a bad example, but Jonathan is a good example. And regardless of what your family is like in Christ, you have the ability to leave behind the sins of your father and mother. It's true, our parents' sins do affect us. Jonathan was going to lose the the king. He was the oldest son. He would have inherited the throne. Saul's sins changed the course of Jonathan's life. And yet we still see Jonathan choosing to trust God, choosing to submit himself to God's will, choosing to wait upon the Lord before he acts. We see an example of one who demonstrates a faith we can follow, a faith in God, a personal faith, that circumvents his family tree and allows him to be the man God wants him to be. 
And notice what we find here as we close out the first act. God absolutely routed the Philistines. We're picking up at verse 20, and we'll read to verse 23. Saul rallied his men, and they go into battle. And behold, what did they discover? Every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Philistines aren't just fighting each other, though. Look at verse 21. The Hebrews who had turned traitors and joined up with the Philistines, reading the tea leaves, as it were, hey, these guys are going to win. We might as well throw in our lot with them, and we will fight against our own countrymen. They turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 22. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. God turned the Philistines against one another. Again, an exact duplication of what he did in Judges 7.22 with the Midianites. He had turned this vast army upon itself. The traitors from Israel rejoined and fought against the Philistines. The deserters returned and fought. And all glory belongs to the Lord who saved that day. The battle does belong to the Lord. He alone deserves the credit for the victory. No one could attribute the victory to Saul, could they? I mean, he was late to get to the conflict, and when he arrives, everybody else is doing the fighting. Further, Saul was handicapped by his small army. And what we will read next is even more sobering because Saul further handicapped his small army by putting a curse on anyone who would eat before nightfall. By announcing a death sentence. So we certainly can't give the credit to Saul. But not even Jonathan, the the man who took initiative, the man who trusted in God, the, the man that God used to start the first domino to fall, he also couldn't be attributed with the great victory because he was just one man, and he was the only other man in Israel, we're told in chapter 13, that had any weapons. God is the one who intervened. God delivered Israel. And it's made even more spectacular by the fact that Israel had such a small army, that this small army had so little weaponry. And God laid down the enemy of Israel just as he did in Gideon's day. Jonathan said, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. His is a statement made in faith. Trusting in a God who had done that in the past and who he saw do it yet again. And God did save by few for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And thus, Act 1 ends, but we need to look at Act 2 and see the second statement is found in this drama. And it comes in verse 24. And we're told right away, the battle is victorious. I mean, this is all good news, isn't it? And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath or a curse upon the people. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. His selfishness to get revenge on his enemies jeopardized his army first in verses 24 through 35, and then we find out that it jeopardized his own heir as well in verses 36 through 34. So we're not going to read through all of this, but I just want to bring your attention to certain things. We see in verse 27 and 28 that Jonathan wasn't there because he was in the thick of things when Saul made this curse. So Jonathan is tired and he's working his way through the wilderness and there's honey dripping from a hive and it's dropping on the forest floor and he's like, boom, 
There's a little treat for me on my way to keep fighting. And he dips the tip of his uh, staff into it, puts it into his mouth, and the sugar burst that he gets from all natural honey, you know what I'm talking about, right? His eyes, we're told, his eyes brighten. And nobody says a word until after the fact, and then they clue him in on what the king had sworn to do. And so as you look at verses 29 through 30, what is Jonathan's response? He laments his father's actions. My father has troubled the land. Eating the spoil of the enemies who had fled would have led to greater victory, Jonathan says in verse 30. There's a proverb of don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. The laborer is worthy of his hire. There's a real benefit from your enemies are fleeing and you grab a sandwich on the way through their camp to keep pursuing them. It gives you fuel. The battle passed over many, many miles of land that day. And Jonathan understood that this was an actual necessity and it was the normal practice of warfare in that time. It wasn't that everybody just stops, let's eat, and then somebody, who wants to go and see if they're still around? No, it was, they're doing battle, but they're going to take advantage of the spoils as they come across them. But Saul, in his stubbornness, in his selfishness, he totally erased any opportunity for his soldiers to do that. And in a beautiful play on words, what we see here is a hungry army who understands they are weakened by this lack of food. And in contrast, we see a king who failed to see how his insatiable appetite for revenge has jeopardized himself, his army, and his heir. I mean, isn't this just wow, right? Just like seeing a failed priesthood next to a failed monarchy, a king, We now see hungry men who are weak and a king who's consumed by his appetite who doesn't get it at all, doesn't see the error of his ways. And so what happens is the people fall on the spoils. They begin to eat meat with the blood in it. Barely has the animal died and they are eating it. And Leviticus and Deuteronomy both speak about how this was forbidden under the Mosaic law. You shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. In all, throughout all your generations, in all your dwelling places, you are neither to eat fat nor the blood. And so the people are just, their appetites have, just like their king, have overruled their inhibitions to obey the law, and they are now sinning. Verses 32 through 34. Word comes to Saul of what's taking place. And Saul tells the people, here's what I want you to do, verse 34. Go amongst the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. But if we back up a little bit further, we look at verse 33, and the word comes to Saul that the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And what does Saul do? The guy that made this curse? He blames the people. You have dealt treacherously with me. Roll a great stone to me here. I mean, this is a king who blames the people for a... a, a thing that he set in place. But it's not the only time Saul will do that. We'll see it again next week in chapter 15. So Saul's selfish curse has caused his army to be weak and it has led them into sin. Is that the kind of leader we want? No. But now we see in verses 36 through 44 that it's also jeopardized his heir. And what we see is Saul is eager to attack the Philistines at night. Let's go down and do this by night. Let's plunder them until morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And notice the people's response over and over throughout this section. They said to him, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. 
And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, being God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all of you, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If there is guilt, if the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Let's pause there for a moment. This is a really challenging passage It's interesting to me that Saul, in his eagerness to attack the Philistines, is only delayed when the high priest slows his role and says, hey, Saul, let's let's just call a timeout and let's ask God for some wisdom here. Jonathan sought the Lord before he acted. And God answered his scenario. He gave him the sign Saul earlier tried to determine what he should do in verses 18 and 19, and he ended up bailing out on the process because it was taking too long. And now he assumes he knows God's mind on the matter, and he's just like, okay, you guys had enough to eat? Let's go. Let's keep going. Let's wipe them out. But we give this little word in verse 37 that God does not answer Saul that day. And I don't know why Saul interpreted God's lack of answer as a sign of sin within the camp, but he was right about that. And yet, the people stay silent in verse 39. Twice, the people tell Saul to do what seems good to you in verse 36 and 40, which I think is is they're starting to understand the personality of their king. Their king has a character that is like this. You can't keep Saul from doing what he wants. He's, he's going to make his rash vow, curse all of us to death if we eat anything. He's just so driven by his own goals. He's going to offer a sacrifice that he's not supposed to. He's going to engage in a battle when he's not heard from God. He's going to be passive, uh, sitting behind the lines, He's going to let somebody else fight his battles. But we know this about Saul. Don't get in his way and don't try to slow him down from doing what he wants to do. And yet, you look at verses 41 and 42, and then what does God do? He answers Saul's prayer. He tells him where the fault lies. The Urim and the Thum, it's kind of like rolling dice. I'll paraphrase this, right? So if, if you get... One color shows up this way or one number shows up that way, then that's Urim. And then if it goes in a different direction, that's Thuman. And so that's going to tell Saul if it's the people of Israel or it's he and his son. But you notice when Saul discovers that Jonathan has sinned, did you notice in verse 43 what Jonathan does? He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't start stammering and concocting an excuse. Well, you, you have to understand, you know, I wasn't there. Um, I didn't know, else I wouldn't have touched it. Please give me mercy. No, he says, here's exactly what I did, and here I am. I will face the consequences for it. We see the example of someone who is a shining example of totally entrusting himself to God's care. And then in verse 30 or 44, Saul shocks the heart of every parent 
by saying, you will die. My son. Now, earlier we made an application to those who wonder if they can follow Christ in spite of their parents. And now I want to warn parents that their sin will negatively affect their children. We interpret Saul's actions as either he's angry that his command was disobeyed, or he's trying to save face by punishing his son. But sadly, regardless of what is his motivation, the curse that his son will die, because ultimately of his sin, is fulfilled in chapter 31 in a battle against this same old enemy, the Philistines. Years later, Saul's impatience in chapter 13 led him into sin, and God brought judgment on his family. The dynasty was forfeited. Now his lust for revenge led him to sin yet again. And when he uttered that rash curse, he condemned his own son to death. Now, I might as well say it. This is not what tough love is. Men, we are called to be godly fathers. So don't allow your baser desires, whether it's revenge in Saul's case, whether it's lust, whether it's the love of money, or it's a love of sports, or it's a short temper, or it's whatever. Don't allow your baser desires to become an occasion to harm those around you. God has designed fatherhood to give life to one's children. To use your authority to lead and sustain them. He's also designed fatherhood as the primary means to disciple one's children to be followers of Jesus. And if you want to learn more about it, we've got some great resources in the Mission Cafe. Some great books on fatherhood. There was a group of guys, we just went through one by Tony Payne called Fatherhood, What It Is and What It's For. Read those. We're right to be sympathetic with Jonathan. I mean, it seems like when he drew a father, he, he, he didn't get a winner. He's been dealt a difficult hand as Saul's son. Not only would he never be king, but now his very life is being threatened. So parents, understand that when you sin against God, the consequences will affect your family. Now these are heavy words, right? Thankfully, praise God, the argument we're making is to embrace the grace that leads to life. And we saw God deliver his people, Israel, using two men. And now we see that the people who have received grace are ready to share grace. And they ransom Jonathan. The story doesn't end with his death, but it leads and ends with his deliverance. Look at verses 45 and 46. This is so fascinating. I will die, he says to Saul. And Saul says, you shall surely die. Then the people speak up. The people who said, Saul's going to do what Saul's going to do. They say, this is not good. Today is a day of salvation, not a day of vengeance. Not a day of death. Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Praise the Lord for courage to speak truth to power. Praise the Lord that people saw here is a flawed man who we will follow, but we will not follow him in this. We see that sin leads to death. It does. But God used the people to ransom the prince. And I think there's three gospel realities that I want to take a couple minutes of to, to explain to us here in just these two verses. First gospel reality is that we, sh we see a shadow of the gospel in this text. And here's what I mean by that. Sin leads to death. 
But grace leads to life. Okay? Sin leads to death. Jonathan unknowingly violated the king's command, but he still violated it. He was still guilty and deserved death. We, we have all violated God's laws in, in deliberate acts and in omissions. Things we haven't done that we ought to do. And yet grace leads to life. You see, the people understood that God had used Jonathan to save Israel. Jonathan had replaced Saul as their leader in battle and in the hearts of the people as it were seen in verse 45. They say we want to show our love and loyalty to Jonathan by ransoming him from death. Now, I wonder this morning, could we ask this? Are you Jonathan or are you Saul as it relates to the sin that leads to death? Are you someone who would say, hey, I don't know about these rules. I didn't grow up in church. I'm a product of my environment. And I'm like Jonathan. I was just doing my thing and there was an opportunity and I took it. I didn't know what the king had said. Or maybe you're like Saul. I'm just bent on doing the things that I want to do when I want to do them. In either way, if you're a Jonathan who sinned in ignorance or a Saul who sinned boldly, both are guilty and deserving of death. Here's what Tony Payne says in his book on fatherhood. God owes me nothing except the judgment we all deserve. Because we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And in the face of this, Tony goes on to say, you can't demand mercy. You can't make a claim on grace. You can only grasp it when it comes with tears of gratitude. God sent Jesus into the world to rescue people who sinned intentionally and who sinned unintentionally. He ransoms us by giving the life of His own Son. Jesus lived this perfect life, laid it down as a substitute to atone for our sins. The Scriptures tell us, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore the wrath we deserved, and now He He can mediate between God and man. We have the people mediating between Jonathan and the king, a faithful prince and a flawed king, but we have in Jesus a far better mediator than the people of Israel were because he is perfect. And he's not a high priest who doesn't know what it's like to walk in this world and be tempted He doesn't know, he's not unaware of how when you are hungry or you are stressed or you are tired or fatigued or when you are broke and penniless that your mind goes to dark places, that you want to do wrong things in order to fast track and exit out of that. He was tested in the wilderness and he maintained integrity. God shows mercy to sinners because he loves them. And we worship a God of grace upon grace. And although the passage notes in verse 35 that that Saul made an altar, it's really a footnote. We never see a dramatic change in the life of this king as the result of seeing God's great grace. He never acknowledged his sin, nor, nor was there a change of character in light of God's redemption. Saul didn't get better from this experience. Friend, don't let that be your story. Today is a day of salvation, so cry out for forgiveness and life. Here's the second gospel reality. Those who have received mercy extend that grace to others. So the first gospel reality is that sin leads to death, but grace leads to life. And now we see the repercussions of those who have received mercy extend mercy to others. God had saved the people, and they respond to God's salvation by rescuing Jonathan. They understood that this was a means of celebration, of preserving life, 
not taking it. And perhaps there's something here for those of us who are in Christ because God is holy. His character is righteous. That when we know Him through Jesus, we become a changed people. So Christian, let me, let me ask you to take some time this afternoon to reflect on the vast, unmeasurable grace that God has poured out on you. And such an exercise ought to remind us of Jesus' words regarding the sinful woman in Luke 7, where she was mocked by the, the religious guy. Jesus doesn't know what kind of horrible woman is touching his feet and washing them with her tears and anointing him. If he did, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And Jesus is like, you know what? Those who are forgiven much, love much. And those that are forgiven little, they love little. Don't let the grace that God has poured out in your life be lost on you. Perhaps you need to show mercy to someone who's sinned against you and they've sought your forgiveness. Perhaps God is prompting you to take the gospel that has changed you and share it with your coworker or your neighbor. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? Christmas is around the corner, and I wonder, are we choosing to live in light of the mercy that we've received? Are we grateful and thankful? Do you, are you talking to your life group or your friends or the unbelievers around you? Are you quick to say, God is alive and well. He's answering my prayers. Here's what he did this week. Here's what he did this week. And you know what? That's multiplied by hundreds of the people that I go to church with. God is alive. You, that may be the only way people know that he is real. They see him working and they hear about his work in your life. Perhaps some of us need to forgive ourselves. And what I mean by that is that we find ourselves yet again in that place of conviction over sin, guilt, shame. And we wonder, how can God forgive me for the umpteenth time of doing this? I mean, am I really a Christian? Is this something... Is this something that I will ever be freed from? Or am I going to struggle with this for the rest of my life? And we may be despairing in that place. Well, let me just tell you, friend, when God ransoms us through Jesus, He forgives all of our sins. Past, present, and future. And if you've been beating yourself up for failing yet, God yet again, then let me just say this. Confess your sins and He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We know that in Christ, God has forgiven you. And this is why we talk not just about our best days, not just, oh, God's done this great thing, but God humbled me this week. Here's how. And then we as brothers and sisters in Christ can tell that person who may feel they're beyond grace to say, but God has forgiven you in Christ, brother. Sister, know this, that when Jesus died on that cross, he died for all your sins. So look to him. Look to him and trust in the promise that he made to atone for all of them, even that. Here's the, here's the thought. Grace received motivates greater love and devotion. That's what we see in the second gospel reality. Now, here's the third one, and, and then we're done. I promise you guys have been awesome today. Marvel at Jesus' perfection. All right? So God empowered this prince to fight Israel's enemies. Later, the people rescued Jonathan. And the overall tone of the account is that Jonathan was someone who needed grace, who received grace upon grace. He needed God's wisdom about what to do. He had good impulses, but he needed confirmation from God. God enabled him. God fought on Israel's behalf. And then John, Jonathan needed grace because he's caught in his sin. And the people rescue him. But here's the beauty about Jesus. Jesus never received grace from God. He gives God's grace to people. 
Jesus is the one who shares God's grace with us because he is God. Colossians 1, 15 through 23, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Paul goes on to say that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, we have a beautiful Savior We who were once alienated and hostile in mind, who were doing evil deeds, have now been reconciled in his body of his flesh by his death. And God has done this, Paul goes on to say, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. This is our calling. We get this in spite of who we are. This, this season, this looking forward to Jesus' coming, the joy that we talked about on this third Sunday in Advent is the result of knowing who we are in Christ, that indeed our sins are forgiven, and that we need to embrace a grace that leads to life. Jesus' enemies were greater than Saul's. If anyone deserved to seek revenge, it would be Jesus. But instead of revenge, what does Jesus do? He extended grace to his enemies. Even on the cross, he prays. God, God sent a deliverer for his people. In this passage of Isaiah or of 1 Samuel 14, Israel's bleak future was given a joyful reprieve. And I just want to say, how much more should we be rejoicing? Because each of us has deserved a sentence of death, but God, through King Jesus, has delivered us for all eternity. For all eternity. Two important statements were given today. One evidenced an unwavering faith in God. The second demonstrated a selfish desire for revenge. Only one produced life. And it was rooted in grace. How will you respond to God's grace? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have accomplished a means of our salvation. We thank you for the reminder that we can be freed from our sinful past. That our our family relationships don't dictate our future. But Christ does. And I just pray, Lord, that we would hide ourselves in the rock that is higher than us, that we would seek you and your kingdom first. We pray that you would give faith, you would lead us to repentance, that you would give us a bold courage and confidence in you, and that we would be faithful to lay all of our plans before you and wait upon you for direction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to ask you to stand with us as we sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, the one who was born to set his people free from fears and sin. We can rejoice in this.